Good morning. Question. What is a genuine faith look like? Okay, good. That's Psalm 46:10. Be still and know that I am God. <laughs> what else? What does a genuine faith look like? What word comes to mind? Joy, Joy thankful, peace, peace. love, real, alive. I didn't catch that. Content, yes. Childlike. How many, how many of you in here have ever faced a trial or a difficult time? Okay, the context of, part of the context of First Peter is that Peter is writing to people scattered throughout Asia Minor who have faced difficult times, and he, he tells them that the presence of these trials are what makes your faith genuine. It proves the genuineness of your faith. And so we have, you have an outline of 1 Peter that I'm not going to get past the very first two verses in the sermon, but in the outline you'll see this key verse in 1 Peter 1, 7. These have come, these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You've rightly named some of the characteristics of a genuine faith, and you'll find that this theme of what is a genuine faith goes all the way through Peter. Now, 1 Peter is a good book to be aware of for a couple of reasons. So let me give you a couple of reasons why we'll pay attention to it. Then I'm going to give you three things that Peter says in those first two verses that are important to us. First, why is the book important? Why is it important to look there? And the first thing is the context of 1 Peter. Now, I know that your pastor, Josh, loves history, so you should be accustomed to getting a little historical background on the text that you're working with. This is Rome in the 50s and 60s, the time in which Peter is writing. In fact, at the time Peter's writing, Nero is the emperor in charge. Rome has moved from being a republic to being an imperial domination of the world. A whole lot of implications of that, not the least of which what was happening in Rome during the time was a whole lot of political turmoil. All around the edges of the Roman Empire and sometimes in the heart of the Roman Empire, there is just smoldering discontent politically. So. Peter is writing to people who live out on the edge of the Roman Empire who also see this smoldering discontent, this sometimes armed resistance that is going to boil over in the next 20 years in the Roman Empire. It's going to get really ugly. The other thing about the context is that there's great social and ethnic diversity and, man, that doesn't work out well a lot. In fact, in the church which has now been in existence for 20 or 30 years, the ethnic tensions in the church have just boiled over to the point that you read in Acts 15. The apostles called together a conference around 50 AD to deal with the fact that people were coming in that were different. People that were coming in that were foreigners, people that were coming in that didn't understand culturally where we came from, that don't speak the language, that are, I mean, they're claiming to be Christian, but they don't look like the church if you grew up as a Jewish person now coming to the Messiah. In fact, they're not even familiar with the language. Matt, you may not be either. I mean, Peter says right there in those two, 
first two verses that, among other things, you're sprinkled with blood. And, you know, if, if you weren't raised in a Jewish home, that just, like, nasty. What? Well, thanks for that, you know. But if you were raised in a Jewish home and you celebrated Passover every year, then you understand what it is to be marked for salvation by the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. This book is filled with Jewish imagery, and Peter is writing to people who live in this cultural clash that's going on all throughout the Roman Empire. And then the third thing that is important to the context we want to look at today is that there's a lot of sexual fluidity in Rome. If you know anything about Roman sexuality, you know that anything goes. And in fact, everything did. And I won't get into the details. You can go to National Geographic for that. But there's just a whole lot of misidentification sexually. There's a lot of cultural and ethnic conflict. There's a lot of political turmoil. And there's a lot of economic chaos going on. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's important to understand the context of the letter because Peter isn't writing to people who haven't lived real life. Peter's writing to people like you and I that are trying to figure out which way is up in a world that is in contradiction to everything that God said. And hence the title of the sermon, To Live a Genuine Faith in a Contradictory World. But the second thing we want to pay attention to is the author himself. I mean, among all of the authors of the New Testament, you have more biographical information on Peter than you do anybody else. He is all the way through the Gospels. He's all the way through Acts. There's just a ton of stuff about Peter, and I love Peter. Peter sounds almost German. My heritage. I mean, he's, he's a curious guy. He interrupts Jesus in the middle of what Jesus is saying more than once, say, explain that to me. He... He has these flashes of insight where when Jesus asked the apostles, who, who do you think I am? It was Peter who said, you're the Messiah, the promised one. He has these flashes of insight. He has this curiosity. He has this fierce devotion to Christ. When, when Jesus was predicting his death, it was Peter who said, that's never going to happen on my watch. Now, this is the interesting one when Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus, God in human form. Peter rebuking God in human form. You got to say, well, how'd that work out for you, Peter? Well, it worked out like this. Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what God is doing. Great, Peter, just this guy. Peter is the guy in the congregation that just isn't always aware of the social etiquette about talking to the speaker. He's the one that would blurt out in the middle of the service. I don't get what you're just saying there. And everybody goes, but that's Peter. Peter has this audacity. He declared, I will never, never, never deny you. In fact, he demonstrated that in a moment of impulsiveness in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was being betrayed. He drew a sword and whacked off the ear of the servant of the high priest so that Jesus had to say, Peter, put away your sword. He picked up the ear he healed the high priest's ear. And then Peter's the one that turned around just hours later and denied three times that he ever met Jesus. Peter's the one who Jesus, after his resurrection, called the disciples together. And as they were having breakfast together over an open fire by the lake, 
Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And a second time, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said a third time, and everybody knew what was going on, including Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. I love Peter because he gets into these interactions with Jesus that I feel like I'm in more than once in my life. I don't know if you've ever had, you you probably haven't, ever had the experience where you deny Jesus and then have Jesus come to you afterwards and say, do you love me? Yes, Lord. So both by context and by author, Peter is someone who can talk about what a genuine faith is and why it's important. Three things that I want to look at. So let me just tell you what I'm going to say. I'm going to tell you, number one, that Peter reveals a new identity for us. Peter reveals a new identity, and that's important. We're going to come back to that. He's going to explain that our new identity relies on a transformation that's radical that goes through all of our lives. And then, the third thing he's going to say is that this new identity realigns our lives and our experience around an extraordinary purpose. Reveals a new identity, relies on a radical transformation, and realigns us around an extraordinary purpose. Let's look at the text. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the exile's Of the dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Okay, there's the introduction. All the further we're going to get. Point number one, you have a new identity. How many of you ever endured physical education in school? Okay. I don't know. They must teach PE teachers this. It's the worst pedagogy ever. Uh, You and you are captains. You pick teams. How many of you hated that part of PE? Oh, my word. For some reason, I kept getting put in with the football players. Not me. And so, I would wait and wait and wait. First string would go first. We'd get through the second string. We'd get through the third string, and then we have the also people. And wait for somebody to pick me because you don't want to be the last person because the last person isn't picked. The last person is argued over. You take him. No, you take him. No, you take him. I hated being that person. Here's the deal. God picked you. You are the elect of God. God picked you. God chose you. God chased you until you finally said yes. Maybe you haven't said yes yet. If you want to get away from that feeling of being pursued and dogged and bugged by God, say yes. God chose you. You're not an accident. 
you, you didn't just roll into the church because this is where you grew up. If it is, you haven't got it yet. God picked you. He could have picked a lot of other people. In fact, he does, but he picked you. This whole idea of being chosen is understood by the people that Peter is writing to because they're of this Jewish ancestry who've been scattered all over the Roman Empire. They understood in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, when God said to Israel, it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery and from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In fact, God goes on to say to Israel, it wasn't because you were the greatest. It wasn't because you were the most noble. It wasn't because you were the largest number of people on the planet. It's because I loved you. So whatever excuse it is that you have said that you don't match up, you can drop that now because God isn't working on any of that criteria. God's criteria is I love you. You're strangers in the world. Now, how did, how did these guys get part of this diaspora, these dispersed peoples? If you understand the history of Israel at all, you know that in 740 B.C., the Assyrians wiped out Israel and scattered them all over. How do you, if you've got a people that you want to conquer and you want to keep them down, what do you do? You uproot them from their location and you put them in various strange cultures. Has anybody been in a different culture, ever moved to a new culture? or visited a new culture. How is that? I remember my first trip to China. <laughs> Land the plane, finally get to get off the plane. I, I can tell you whole stories about the plane, but I'll bypass that for the sake of time. Walk in, and all the signs in English didn't exist. Great. So I'm in this giant airport in southern China trying to figure out where the heck I'm supposed to go because i got to catch another plane to get to the farthest point south in China. And I have no idea where I'm going. And so I grab this very nice-looking police officer, not nice-looking, and said, can you tell me where to go? I pointed at my ticket, and he just pointed. So I thought, okay, I'm walking that way. I got down that way and started through the turnstile, and then another very nice police officer grabbed me, grabbed my stuff, threw it back out, and pointed the other way. And so I thought, oh, right, I'm a human carob piece until I find the right plane. I finally found the right plane, but it was really awkward. People living in a sense of awkwardness, let me tell you one thing that I was, was very attentive because nothing was familiar. You're chosen by God, and God's asking you to live like a stranger, to live like an immigrant, to live like a foreigner, why? So you'll be very attentive because the way you think it works isn't. You have to learn all over again. I mean, I go overseas, I do some of the greatest faux pas ever because I have one frame of reference. And so I have to go as a student. I have to go as a stranger. I have to go as an immigrant. When I entered into the kingdom of God, look, I was raised in church. I get the church thing. I get it. I had it down. I knew how to survive the church service without my dad yanking me out of my seat, taking me to the narthex and belting me like he did my brothers. 
One of the tricks was I would do something, he would look. I would just look at my brother. He was gone. But that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The question that comes out of this new identity is this. Do you live with this new identity? Or are you living an identity that's false? Remember the context? Political turmoil, sexual turmoil, economic turmoil. What's the identity that you frame for yourself? Is it to look like Jesus? Because if it's not, if it's some other identity, I can tell you that the more you struggle to fit into whatever identity you frame for yourself, the less satisfying it's going to be. I framed an identity of success. Well, the bad thing about that is you can achieve that and then discover it's empty. I, I don't have a problem with success. I love success. But I love more that I'm one that God has chosen. I had a person challenge me once. It was great. I love the question. The question came out like this. Just who do you think you are? You ever had anybody say that to you? I mean, that's an immediate shutdown statement, right? If I'm going to shut somebody down, that's how I'm going to do it. Only they didn't anticipate my response. I didn't anticipate my response. It just kind of popped out. Because my response that just popped out was, I'm a son of the most high God. Why? Who are you? I have a new identity, and I'm learning to operate in that identity. And what's glorious about it is it's setting me free from the identity I had. Second thing, Peter says, look, this, this relies on the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. There's a radical transformation that goes on. Sanctifying, if you've been around the church, this is a word that is really weird. People do strange things with it. One guy told me once he was completely sanctified. I said, what does that mean? He says, I'm without sin. I said, well, John says you're a liar then. I mean, I've read the epistle of John. It just says, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. Uh, he was discovered later to be having an affair with three different women while he was married. So I'm thinking, you keep using that word, sanctified, but I'm not sure it means what you think it means. Sanctified has two basic definitions. John, come here. Definition number one, I just called John out. Jesus has called you. He's chosen you. It's something different now. First definition of sanctification. Eh, second definition of sanctification. You know, I can, I can show you how to polish those shoes. <laughs> and how to use an iron. <laughs> Just hang on, buddy. I'll help you be as awesome as I am. Good. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> it's a process, the second part. It's a training. It's a learning how to be like Jesus. It never stops. I received Jesus when I was 12. That was 50 years ago. Yeah, you did the math, right? I'm 50 years old. <laughs> That's why I have a social sciences degree where there isn't a lot of heavy math in it. For 50 years, I've been following Jesus. He called me. I said yes. 
There's a whole story there I don't have time to tell. And now he's been working in me. Just the other day, I was at a college doing a seminar for their administration, and somebody said something that nailed me. They caught me in a point of ignorance, disagreement. And the first words out of my mouth were to defend myself and to qualify. And as I was doing that, it was like the Holy Spirit was standing next to me going, and so the energy of my response just went, and I stopped mid-sentence, and I looked the person in the eye, the woman in the eye that had just corrected me, and I said, I, excuse me, I'm sorry. You're right. And I have no response. Let's forget that self-defensiveness I just gave. I have no response because you just pointed out something I haven't thought about yet. And if you have any insight, I'm all ears. Teach me. Now, that would have been a great response to start with. (laughs) But I'm being sanctified. God is still developing in me what it looks like to be a believer. You see, it's both a realization of who I am, I'm God's, and then it's an empowerment to be about God's work, and that empowerment begins to infiltrate and fool with everything. Listen, I mentioned I was raised German. You can't find a better cultural background. for an arrogant, unemotional, you know, data-driven culture. You just, you can't find a better one. And I got saved, and, you know, I've grown in Christ. And I remember my first pastor, I hired a consultant to come in and help us because we were growing, and God was doing great things. And I was leading, the good chairman that I was. And so he did a personality profile on me, and, and I said, yeah, he said, uh, I'd like to share the results. I said, okay, go ahead, yeah, you know, lay it on me, I know, German, good. Raised Lutheran, so you know my theology is solid too. He said, yeah, he said, uh, you're going to need some wheel watchers. He's, he's a Scotsman, so I'm, you know, speaking in parables, I don't get it. Just give me the data, dude. I said, what are you talking about wheel watchers? He said, you're a high D. You have a dominant leadership style. You're confident you know where you're going. You have a clear vision. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, the wheel watchers were the slaves that moved the stones of the ancient pyramids. If a slave fell in front of the stone, they didn't stop moving the stone. The slave would be crushed because you can't afford to stop the momentum. You approach ministry like that. You realize that. I go, well, yeah, I've got a clear vision for what God wants to do. Right. And that's why the members of your staff and members of your congregation have your footprints running up over their face. I don't know what you're talking about. I love these people. And that's the only reason they haven't left. You need wheel watchers. People who see what you don't see and help you respond to it because you're too driven Pay attention to the people that you're supposed to be serving. Uh, 
who hired you? <laughs> the question in the new identity is, will you live that new identity? The question in the radical transformation, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that identifies us and calls us out and then teaches us how to live is this. Will you live a lifestyle of repentance and learning? Will you live a lifestyle of repentance and learning? Because I'm going I'm to tell you, there's not one of us in this room that's got it together. Not one of us in this room that's got it all together. We are all just a big a mess on the inside. It's just some of us have put a really nice glaze over the top of it. Woo! Check that out. But when you open it up, I'm in just as much need of Jesus today as I ever was. As that transaction I just talked about illustrates. Reveals a new identity. I'm God's. God has chosen me. Unleashes a radical transformation in the empowering of the Holy Spirit that constantly teaches and leads me to repent. And the third thing is realigns me to an extraordinary purpose. I work with a lot of different churches and mission agencies and businesses. And there's always one question that throws people for a real loop. I ask them, what's the number one thing that I you think I should look for in an organization that represents the kingdom of God. Well, let's, go, let's give two. And so people will pretty much always land on love. That's good. The sooner they land on that, the happier I am in terms of the work cut out for me. But the second one is much more problematic. The second one is power. What is the power in your life that people see? Are you an empowered person as a Christian, or are you a wuss? Is there something powerful that's going on? Now, you know, you, some of you have been around charismatic Pentecostalism for a while, so I'm going to say power, and you're going to think healing. I'm going to say power, you're going to think prophecy. I'm going to say power, you're going to think one of the big power gifts, you know? One of those, you walk into a room, I hate guys that are anointed like this, right? You, stand up. You know, and they give this word of insight about what's going on in your life. That happened to me once with a guy named Dick Mills. He goes, you, pastor from Chehalis, stand up. Well, I pastored in Centralia. This is years ago. So I turned around to find a pastor at Chehalis, and he wasn't there. And so he goes, you, and he's pointing right at me. So I'm thinking he's behind me. Pastor from Chehalis, stand up. I'm, still, I'm not getting it. Finally, he's pointing right at me, and I, so I point at me, and he nods, yes, you pastor from Chehalis. So I stood up. I go, I pastor in Centralia. He goes, yeah, you pastor in Chehalis. And then he read my mail in front of all the other pastors that were in the room. It was delightful for a German. Power. Yeah, that's included, but there's another kind of power. I was in Starbucks, and I saw somebody that looked really troubled. I said to the Lord, because one of those times I'm paying attention to what's going on around me, I said, Lord, this guy really needs a touch from you. What is it? Miracle? Word of knowledge? I'm ready. You know, power demonstration. Should I throw my iPod on the floor and he becomes a snake like Moses did with his stick? What are we doing here, God? And the only thing I got was, 
go say hi to him and ask if you can give him a hug. Well, that's going to be a lousy story. That's not going to play well on my blog, Lord. Come on, give me something powerful. Go do that. So, hi, I'm Ray. Hey, you know, I'm just noticing you look kind of troubled. I said, can I just give you a hug? Yeah. So I did. And the guy melted into my arms. I mean, he just bear hugged me. He held on. I'm German. You know, I can handle a man hug for a second. God, this is getting weird now. Should I let go? No. Okay. I look like Jesus. Now? No. Now? No. Ray just hugged the guy. We're there in Starbucks with a bear hug. And I started thinking, I hope he doesn't pop his drink open on my back. <laughs> I mean, I'm really just paying attention to the Holy Spirit at this point. And finally, he lets go, and he steps back, and big tears in his eyes. He said, thank you, I really needed that. And he turned, and he walked, and he left. Well, God... Where was the power? Oh, there was plenty of it in everybody that watched. I went in to pick up my cleaning one day. You, I pressed shirts. <laughs> Even when I was being a hippie, I ironed my shirts. I, the German part of me. I walked in to pick up my shirt one day, and, and the lady behind the counter said, my husband and I saw you and your wife. <laughs> I said, what? We saw you walking downtown. You were holding hands. Okay. But you see, not from my culture. That open affection and demonstration in her culture would never have happened. And it spoke to her about the love of Jesus. She said, what is it that you guys have? Because her and her husband were going through a tough time. Power, power is the impact of the presence of God on the surroundings that you're in, that you'll see unleashed. Mark, some scholars say this isn't part of Mark. Okay, scholars say weird things. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. All of these things happened in Peter's life. He's aware of this as he talks about later on in the book. You'll read him say, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And then these important qualifications. And do it with respect and gentleness. I... Look sometimes at where we are as an evangelical church in the United States, and I don't recognize us as being Christian. Say, well, you know, this is a radical culture bar. They're out after us. 
I would listen to that if it was coming, if you lived in the Middle East and your friends had just been beheaded. I'd, I'd give you room for that. But here, even if that were happening, I would ask you, are you giving a reason for the hope with gentleness and with respect? Somebody whose sexual orientation is different than mine made an appointment to see me one day. And we met, we talked about what Jesus was doing in their life. They weren't a Christian yet. And my habit, at the end of the appointment, I hugged them and then walked out, had my arm around them and sent them, sent them away. Not sent them away like, get out of here. <laughs> the appointment was done. They, they needed to go. And one of the members of my congregation heard about it and called up and chewed me out. What are you doing hugging a gay guy? Oh, there are so many answers that went through my head <laughs> that were completely inappropriate. But I would love to have said to him. But I landed on this one. Be in Jesus. Well, did you tell him to repent? Is he going to turn or burn? No. I told him about the love of God. I told him about how Jesus transforms lives. I told him about hope where there's hopelessness. I talked about comfort and despair. I talked about the issues that were important to him that God is already working in his life. I'm ready to give an answer for the hope that's in me. Do you live the adventure and sometimes the challenge of what Peter calls a living hope? A hope that doesn't stop, a hope that is irrepressible, a hope that won't go away, a hope that just keeps popping up like a beach ball in a pool, that hope with gentleness and respect. What's a genuine faith look like in a contradictory world? It looks like this. It looks like people who are living out a new identity. It looks like people who are undergoing a radical transformation. It looks like people who realign to this extraordinary purpose of doing what Jesus did and having the same impact. That is a genuine faith. That is the faith that while I was growing up in church, wondered how to plug into that. And when I finally, someone introduced me to Jesus, I went, oh, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. If you've been introduced to the Jesus who died, who rose from the dead, who gives this kind of living hope, will you be a church that has a genuine faith? I, I tell you, the community's heard about you, and the community's watching you. Say, oh, man, Ray, I, I just blew it the other day. Oh, they need to see that. Last, I, I got to tell this story, and then we got to go. I'm married, have been for 43 years. I know I'm loving that. Janice, my wife, and I are both firstborn.
there's something about Irish people who are firstborn that just don't know when to admit that they're wrong. And she would say, there's something about German people who are firstborn that just don't know when to admit that they're wrong. And there was a day that we were in public and we had a discussion in which we both knew we were right and the intensity level began to ascend. Do you know what I'm talking about? I thought you did. See, oh, you ruined your witness. You ruined, people are going to look at you now and go, it's all hypocrisy. And then I get, pay attention to the story. Because in the middle of one of our sentences, I think she did it first, she just started laughing and said, I'm sorry. And oh, I suppressed, I suppressed the statement that I wanted to say, which was, as you should be. I mean, I just, I was, I was right there, right there, Holy Spirit, you know, pulling me back. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry too. And we both started laughing. And then we did a little smoochy smoochy because I have a license, so public shows of affection now are totally within the purview. And then we just, hand in hand, we walked away. And someone caught us later. I just saw you guys. Yeah, I mean, that's just a little weird, you know. Okay. I want what you guys have. Which part? One part's really easy. The other part takes a real response to the Holy Spirit. Are you making people thirsty to have what you have? Are you living out a new identity? Are you following through on the realignment that God is doing? Are you living out this radical transformation that aligns to the mission of Jesus? That's who you get to be as a church, Granite Creek. And when you get that way, let me tell you what will happen. All heaven and hell will break loose. You will have all kinds show up here that you will need to be able to give an answer for the hope that's in you with gentleness and with respect. And when you can give that answer in gentleness and respect, you're going to watch Jesus, who just like he chose you, is going to demonstrate that he's chosen them. In just the same way Jesus chose you, not because you were the biggest, brightest, best, but because God loves you, Jesus is going to choose them. How do you start? Do you live a lifestyle of repentance? Where are you at this morning? Do you need to just be reaffirmed that God is really working in your life? That during the prayer time that's about to happen, there'll be people in the back that are ready to pray for you? You go back and say, I just need to be reminded. I need to be set free. I've really missed it this week. Do you need to, are you on the other end of the spectrum and you thought you had it all together? And there's something that came out this morning that you just went, oh, you know, I'm, I'm as jacked up as everybody else. I just need you to pray for me. Or are you here this morning and you're going, now how do I get into this? Here's how. You believe in Jesus Christ. Go back there. 
say to the person that's ready to pray for you, hey, look, before you pray, can you introduce me to the one who rose from the dead? And they will make that introduction. And if they can't do it, they'll find someone who can. Then you both can meet Jesus. Stand with me, would you? You have a new identity. You have a living hope. You've been realigned around a meaningful purpose. Plug in. Respond to God. Let God work that in your life. In Jesus' name.